adulthood for a lot of reasons. And I'll tell you reason number one. As an adult, if I want a cookie, I have a cookie. Okay? I have three cookies or four cookies or 11 cookies if I want. Many times I will intentionally ruin my entire appetite. Just ruin it. And then I call my mother up right after to tell her that I did it. But, oh, Mom, yeah, I just ruined my entire appetite. Cookies. So what if you ruin it? See, because as an adult, we understand, even if you ruin an appetite, there's another appetite coming right behind it. There's no danger in running out of appetites. I've got millions of them. I ruin them whenever I want. Morning, everyone. Uh, how many Seinfeld fans do we have here today? Yeah, all right. That's uh, one of my favorite, Seinfeld. Um, I don't know that that video actually has anything to do with the message today, but I just thought it would be fun to laugh as we get into it. Uh, you, you might draw some inferences or some uh, application uh, regarding the message, but um, hey, I, I wanted to encourage you uh, regarding this outreach on Wednesdays that we're doing. Uh, five o'clock, come to the church, and uh, I think the, the, the team that's leading this will make it easy for you to be a part of it, and uh, it'll, it'll really light your life up to go out and touch somebody else's life like this, so five o'clock on Wednesday. But um, we um, have been in this series called The Gospel of the Kingdom, and if you've, if you've been here for very many weeks, you know that the term gospel means good news, but it, it actually means more than that. Gospel means the announcement of good news or the proclamation of good news. And so it, it's not just good news, but it's good news getting out there. And I, I mean, truthfully, good news that's hidden isn't really good news. If, if nobody hears it, then it's not good news because it's not news. And so the good news is the gospel message being proclaimed, the proclamation of the gospel. And uh, in its very simplest form, the definition of the gospel, when you break it down to its core components, is this. Jesus Christ, God's son, lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was really dead, buried, and he rose from the dead on the third day. And anyone who puts faith in him, receives new life through faith in him. That is the gospel message. Anyone who puts faith in him receives the type of life that God created us to receive and created us to walk in and to live in. And so uh, this gospel message is, is the, the power of God to change people's lives. It flows out of the heart of God's love for us and God's heart of love for mankind. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, if you were here, here uh, Wilson used an illustration and he said it's as if, and we say as if because we don't really know what happened, but uh, theologians do write in massive theologies about the counsels of God. But uh, let's picture it like this. God created mankind. God created us for a purpose, for relationship with him. We broke faith with God. We broke our relationship with God by disobeying him. And yet God loved us so much that God wanted to restore us to relationship with him. And so picture this council in heaven 
where God the Father just pours his heart out about his love for humanity and, and expresses his heart in his desire to bring humanity back. How are we going to get them back? And God the Son, who is there as part of this council, he rises up and he says, I'll go. I will go and I will become one of them. I'll become a human being and I will live a sinless life. And by that, I will break the power of sin and free them from sin so they can come back to us. And the Holy Spirit says, and I'll go with you. If you're going to become human, then I will go with you and I I will empower you so that you can live as a perfect human being. I will empower you. And then when you have died and you've come back to the Father, then I, the Holy Spirit, will flood into the world and I will empower them the same as I empowered you while you were there. And so God's desire is to bring us back into full relationship with him, into full status that he, cre- that he created us for, and to bring us back into the place that we actually carry his presence with us in this world. So it really does kind of beg the question, though, to what end? What's the ultimate uh, purpose? And I, and I want to address this because this could be confusing in some of our minds. Uh, you know, what's the end of all of this? I know it all was motivated by God's incredible love for us, but what, what was God's goal? And I've been pastoring for about um, oh, 35 years now, went to seminary before that, and spent years in the academic community and, and, and in, in, in the whole evangelical realm. And I can tell you that for about the last 150 years or more, that, that question, what was God's ultimate purpose, would very often be answered like this. God's ultimate purpose was to keep people out of hell. God's ultimate purpose was to save people so they could go to heaven when they die. And you'd see pictures of just hordes of people falling off a cliff into this burning abyss And that was a motivation then for believers to go out and to share the good news with people. And I mean, honestly, let's admit it, avoiding hell sounds like a pretty good thing, doesn't it? Anybody here disagree with that? (laughs) Going to heaven, would you vote for that? Yeah, that's got my vote too. I'm all for it. And that is part of the package. That's part of the deal. But the the thing that God's desiring to do in our lives through the gospel is is, uh, more than that. It extends into this world, and it extends into what he wants us to do in this world. Uh, Some people have said this, it's, it's not just God's intent to get us into heaven when we die, but God wants to get heaven into us while we're still alive. And, and that's, that's what the kingdom is. That's why we call it, this series, the gospel of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is the place that God rules. It's the place where everything's done perfectly because it's done God's way. And right now, where, where is that? That's heaven. In heaven, God rules. In heaven, things are done the way God created them to be done. And and that's exactly why Jesus told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. 
And those were bold prayers that Jesus was giving us. The tense of the, of, and the voice of those uh, verbs uh, when it says, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. It, it's almost like a, 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 just this boldness that we're to come before God with. It's almost like a command. And so he's saying to us that as followers of Jesus, we have authority to call God's kingdom into this world and to speak for that which is happening in heaven to happen here. And so ultimately, God's desire would be that anything that's not happening in heaven shouldn't be happening here. And, and it, it mean, ultimately, when Jesus returns, he's going to set this all right. But right now, it's still his will that what's not happening in heaven not happen here. And what is happening in heaven does happen here. And so God's intent is to have this intense relation, this intensely close relationship with us so that we go throughout this world, throughout this life, carrying his presence with us in such a way that everywhere we go, we're carriers of the kingdom of God and your workplace. I mean, so often, uh, just think about your workplace. So often we, uh, we view ourselves as, uh, as these diminutive, ineffective, people that are just being beat up all the time and um, emotionally and spiritually and all the people in my workplace, none of them love God. And I go there and I just get so depressed and it just, it just tears me down spiritually to be there because none of them love God and blah, blah, blah. And they gossip and they do this. And, and one of them's into witchcraft or whatever. And we, we feel like, you know, we're, we, we, we have this small view of ourselves, but what Jesus is uh, leading us into, and what we're going to see here in this message is that we don't need to have that view of ourselves. We just carry the, we carry the presence of the kingdom with us. And, and by that, we carry the presence of Jesus and the anointing of the spirit. And we don't have to be intimidated by any situation we enter into. We don't have to be afraid of any situation we enter into because as a believer in Christ, I carry the kingdom of God. The spirit of God is resting on me and I can walk into that place. And you know, that, that time that, um, the woman reached out and just touched Jesus' cloak. There was a time when Jesus is walking by in this crowded street and a woman reached out and touched, just touched the hem, the, just the bottom of his cloak. And it says that Jesus felt, uh, one translation says virtue. Another one says power, but Jesus felt something going out of him. And into this woman, and she was healed just by touching him. Well, I would like to be so filled with God's presence that I could walk past someone in the mall and just maybe brush their shoulder. And as I do, just, you know, kingdom of God, come. Or, or walk up to somebody that you haven't met and just in a friendly manner, put your hand on their shoulder. And they don't realize it, but I'm just, I'm praying, Holy Spirit, fill them. You know, come right now, Holy Spirit, your presence. Let them experience your presence. Let them experience the love you have for them. Let them experience the kingdom. So when we really begin to grasp the purpose that God has for us, there's no need for anxiety or fear or worry or to view ourselves as these small people that need to be protected. Oh my, I'm going into this place where where they um, they sell Ouija boards and oh, I'm so fearful. I've got to... I mean, I'm not going to buy any, but I don't have to be afraid of that. 
mean, I don't have to be afraid to go into that setting because I carry the kingdom of God with me. So this, uh, j- just to review a little, the, um, the messages we've heard so far have been, have been really powerful these past weeks. Uh, we've, we've been forgiven eternally through Jesus. Um, and, and this thought came out in a message a few weeks ago, that when we come to know Christ, our old nature dies. The old nature is dead. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So he's saying here, I've been crucified. I'm dead. And in, later in that same book in Galatians, Paul said this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their sinful nature with its passions and desires. So the cross is an instrument of death. The cross killed Jesus. Now I know you could say, well, wait a second. Jesus gave, gave up his spirit at the end. I understand that. But it was, the cross was the instrument of death that they, that they put Jesus through the agony he went through. And the cross is an instrument of death. And so the same cross that killed Jesus killed my sin nature. And in a mystery that I don't fully comprehend, when my life intersected the life of Christ, and what I mean by that is the moment that I saw who he was and I submitted my life to him, that moment where our lives intersected and I said, Jesus, uh, you know, I, I... I have been living a life of rebellion and sin and forgive me for that. I want you in my life. Come into my life, Jesus, and change me. Make me new. At that moment, when our lives touched and intersected like that, not only was I forgiven, but in a mystery, we exchanged histories. In a mystery, we, um, well, in a mystery, let me back this up a step. In a mystery, his cross, the same cross that killed him, killed me. It killed my old nature so that I can say I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am no longer a slave to sin. And that's what Paul said. What that means, does that mean I never sin? No, of course I sin. But what it means is when I sin now, when I sinned before I knew Jesus, I was acting just in complete accord with my basic nature. And it was just flowing out of the basic nature I had as a sinner. Once I come to know Jesus and I receive this new heart and that old nature is killed, that sin nature is killed, I still sin, but now I sin based upon my misunderstanding of who God is, my misbeliefs on who I am and how he's made me, and my failure to trust him, just like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not have a sin nature. And yet they heard lies about God and they believed those lies and they acted on those lies and they sinned. And so for you and for me to recognize that when I sin, that doesn't mean I'm this horrible slug of a person. It just means, you know, I'm God's child. I'm God's child and I need to renew my thinking. I need to change. I need to get my thinking more lined up with God's word so that I think right, so that I'll make right decisions and I, can, uh, and I can trust God with my life. But we saw also that guilt was eradicated. Romans 8, 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
You hear that? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's say that together, okay? No condemnation, just those two words. No condemnation. Okay, again, no condemnation. Now, I want you to say it as if your life depends on it, all right? Say this as if you are correcting your thinking, and if you're under some form of spiritual attack, you're taking authority over it, and, and we're saying there's no condemnation. So just to say those two words, okay, ready? No condemnation. All right, there's no condemnation for the one that's in Christ. And yet, how many of us who, who really know Jesus live with a, a constant sense of guilt, a constant sense of lingering guilt? I think sometimes that I was born with a guilty conscience. And I know in elementary school, if the teacher looked at me and uh, there's something that had happened, I, I just I just as soon confess, even though I didn't do it, just because I already felt guilty. I did something wrong, I'm sure. So I'll say I did it. But uh, we don't have to live with that. There's freedom from condemnation. In fact... Uh, in an amazing verse, one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and this was a message that Luke uh, Hazelmeyer gave. Luke did the uh, announcements this morning. Uh, this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, he says, he became sin. Now, that takes it a step further than saying he died for sin. That takes it a step further than saying he stepped in my place and took my punishment. It says he actually became sin. I I can't think of any stronger term uh, to to, uh, describe what happened at the cross that freed us from sin. Because what this is saying is, again, when my life intersected his... When my life intersected the life of Jesus, then we exchanged lives. It's kind of like those goofy shows, you know, where the mother and the daughter, I know there's one where the mother and the daughter bump heads or something and the daughter's personality goes into the mother's body and the mother's personality goes into the daughter's body. Have you ever seen any of those? Oh, some of you know the name of it? Wow. I didn't. What's the name of it? Oh, Freaky Friday. Okay. Okay. So you've seen it. All right. Except what happened was I said, Jesus, come into my heart and into my life. And at that moment, we exchanged lives so that his history of righteousness became my history. And my history of sin became his history. Think about that. His his, I get his righteousness. He gets my sin. But there, there was a statement that Luke made in his message that really kind of played with my mind a little. I agree with it. Uh, but, but it was a statement that stretched my thinking. And I want to toss it out to you. And that is this. When we say this, when we say there was an exchange of lives and Jesus took my sin, that's like saying Jesus did it. Jesus did it. It's not just saying, well, Jesus, uh, you know, I don't have the money to pay this fine. And Jesus says, well, okay, I like you. I'm gonna, I'll pay the fine for you. Judge, he doesn't have enough money. I'll pay his fine for him. Now, that's true. But when you take it to this other level, we understand Jesus actually took the sin 
on himself. He became that. He became sin. And that means I look at things in my past and I can say, wait a second. I, I have a history of righteousness through Jesus. Jesus did that, not me. Jesus did it. And he died on the cross for it. And he totally crushed it and defeated it so that I could be set free from it. And that's, that's a crucial thing for us to understand. Last week, um, we saw a Dave King gave a message on what it means to be adopted into God's family. And a great message where Dave shared some uh, personal stuff from his past life. And, um, and, and the significance of having a place of belonging and how adoption gives us that. But Romans eight fifteen and 16 says this. It says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. That's a term of endearment. It's a term of closeness, of heartfelt love and desire and closeness. And then he goes on to say, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So we are God's children. The Holy Spirit testifies to that. We are adopted into God's family. You have a place. If you feel like an outcast, if you feel like you've never fit in, that's not true. If you know Jesus, you have a place. And you know, if you haven't come to know Jesus yet, if you're still figuring this whole Jesus thing out and Christianity out, you can come to know him right now. If, if you feel some stirring in your heart, even as I'm talking, you can just right now in your seat, you can just say, you know, I believe this. Jesus, I believe you are. I believe what this guy's saying about you. And I need you in my life. Come into my life. And if you do that right now, in that moment of time, you will have intersected your life with the life of Christ. And his work on the cross will take care of your old sin nature. And his life will become your life. Life where you uh, receive his righteousness and you become adopted into the family of God. A permanent member of God's family. And so uh, these, are, these are really crucial truths that we have to grasp in order to really grow as believers. And one of the things we have to do really is to have our eyes, spiritual eyes. I mean, how many of you know that there, there is spiritual eyesight? You know, just like there's physical eyesight, there is spiritual eyesight. And the Bible refers to the eyes of the heart. So you can see things with your heart. And you can, you can uh, perceive and comprehend things with your heart. And we have to have our hearts tuned in to see and to perceive and to comprehend these spiritual truths. And that means our minds are being renewed with truth. And our hearts are being attached to that truth. And so here the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 said this. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance for us who believe. So he prays first that the eyes of the heart may be enlightened. And actually the tense that is used there, uh, it, it should be stated something like, um, based upon the fact that the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. Because it's a, a Greek tense that means it's already happened. And so at the moment I came to know Jesus, 
my spiritual eyes and my heart were given sight and light poured into them. And he's praying here that, that we would use that, that would use those, those spiritual eyes that God's given us. Because if we don't use them, then we still see wrongly. And, and if we see wrongly, then we're going to act wrong. And, uh, and so it's, it's so crucial that we understand these truths so that we can perceive the truth and allow it to renew our minds and, and just to change our hearts and our lives. And we base our lives upon the truth then. Uh, but this whole picture, this whole idea of eyesight, um, you know, when I was uh, in my very first church in the 80s, this was in the mid 80s, I came, we came to a point where we decided that I had to part, do some part-time work. And so I started roofing. And uh, any roofers here? Okay, contractors? Okay, wow. Um, it, was a, it was a great job for me as a pastor to do because it was, it was something tangible and it was just hard work, but uh, you know we didn't have any of those of the pneumatic tools or anything. We just carried nails and pounded them in with hammers. And um, I, you know, I was a, a decent roofer on a one-story roof, but uh, I'm afraid of heights. So anytime we did a two-story house, I just, I just, you know, I went up and held onto the rain spout, or I would find the trough where you could have something on both sides of you, and, and I just couldn't move. So I didn't make much money on the higher houses because uh, it just didn't feel too secure to me. But um, we were on this one job where we left early in the morning, left about seven o'clock. We, three of us, we drove the truck, all the equipment. We drove it to another town about an hour away. and, And we wanted to get this job done in one day so we didn't have to go back there the next day. And so we worked like 10, 12 hours on this job all day long, got, got the job done. And we're driving home. It's dark out. It's about 9 o'clock at night. And we decided to stop at this fast food restaurant. And so we stopped at this fast food restaurant and went in, uh, got our food, sat down at a table. And um, I've always worn glasses. Uh, my eyesight is better now than it was then. But then if I took my glasses off, I, was, you know, I didn't see real well. And so I my, just took my glasses off. They were dirty and my head hurt. And I put them down on the table and we're eating. And I looked up and I looked across the room and uh, it just happened. There was a table of guys, three guys sitting on the opposite side of the room from us. And I thought that was interesting. But then I noticed one of them was staring at us and he was just staring right at us. And so, you know, like where I grew up before I was saved, that would lead to a fight, you know, it would be, what are you looking at? And you want me to come over there now at at that point, I was a believer. So of course I'm not going to get, get into anything like that. But, uh, and, and I didn't know enough then to know, to pray for people. That was before we really engaged with this whole concept of praying for people today. I'd walk over and, uh, introduce myself and see if I could pray for the guy. But as it was, I just, you know, this is weird. And I looked down and started eating and I looked up again and the guy's still staring at us. And so I'm really thinking, this is really weird. Third time I look up and he's still staring at us. And I said to my buddies, I said, hey, don't look right now. But uh, there's these guys over there and one of them, it just keeps staring at us. And they looked at me and they said, dude, what are you smoking? They said, that's our reflection in the window. Whew. 
It was a perfect reflection. Yeah. I mean, without my glasses on, it looked real. And you know how like a big window, it's dark outside and it's lit inside. And that window just reflected us perfectly. So we avoided a fight that night. We made it home okay. Anyway. We've got to have our eyesight. We've got to, we've got to have that, the, these spiritual eyes. We've got to pay attention to them. We've got to allow the Holy Spirit to, uh, to, to nuance them and to, uh, to uh, enable them to function fully. We need to just ask God, God, open my, give me greater eyesight. Anything that's clouding my eyesight, show me. Just blow, get, get it out. I reject it. I reject it right now. Whatever it is, tell me, and I'll repent of it. I'll just say, no, I, I don't want that. Because uh, we ha- our eyesight, we have to have our eyesight to see these truths so that we can understand, so that we can begin to live as the new creations that God's created us to be. Now, the verse that uh, Dave read goes on and gives this fantastic promise, and that is in uh, Romans eight seventeen. And in this passage, he goes on to say this. He says, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I just want to camp on that thought for a moment. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You know what an heir is? An heir is a person who has the legal right to someone else's property, possessions, uh, title, position, when they die. When that person dies, you get their stuff. Now, technically, you're an heir, even if the other person doesn't have anything. But the way we typically use the word heir is when there is some substantial, uh, something substantial that's being passed on. Like uh, you're the heir to the... um, you know, to the MacArthur fortune or to the Hilton fortune, the heiress to the Hilton fortune. Uh, you, you don't say, well, he is the heir to the pauper, you know, who you know, has nothing. Typically, we don't use it that way. But uh, this word uh, has um, this connotation in it of receiving something that someone else worked for. It's not something you've earned, something someone else worked for, and, but you get it and, and you get to participate in it. Now, when it refers to joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ, let's take a look at that. Let's talk about what that means. Co-heirs with Christ. Um, Okay, so let's say here's the will. Uh, One person gets $10,000 and the other gets $1,000. Are they co-heirs? Yes or no? What do you think? Most saying no or yes. Which way are you going to shake your heads? Up or down? Okay, some people are saying yes. Uh, some people are saying no. Uh, no, they are not co-heirs. Now, in, in equal shares does not make you a co-heir, all right? All right, now let's say they both get 10,000 each. Now are they co-heirs, right? Are they? You know I'm tricking you. So no, they are not co-heirs then either. That's not what the word means. What it means when they, it says they are co-heirs means they are joint heirs. That's what the Greek word means, joint heirs. So it doesn't mean, well, we both get a whole, whole bunch of power from Jesus. He gave me a big 
all of this and he gave you all of that. No, what it means is he gave us something in joint ownership. It's like a father who passes away and says, I'm going to leave my, uh, my house to my two children and they will own it jointly uh, in perpetuity. They will own it jointly and they have to decide together what they're going to do with that house and how they're going to live in that house. So joint means that you receive with the other person, you receive everything with the other person in a joint ownership account. Does that make sense? Okay, let me illustrate it then. Uh, Luke and Will, will you guys come up here? All right, um, I said normally an inheritance is something valuable. These, this is just representative of my library. I love my books. I have a whole lot more than this. But uh, guys, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass from the scene here someday, and you guys are young pastors. And so I want you to have this library as an inheritance, all right? So um, here you go. Here you go. Here you go, Luke. There you go, Luke. There you go, Luke. And there you go, Wilson. Okay, is that a joint inheritance? It's not, is it? It's not, no. Okay, it's not even an equal inheritance. All right, how about this? Luke, you get that one, and Wilson, you get that one, and you get that one, blue one. There you go, Luke. Now you each get a red one. Is that a joint inheritance? No, it's not. It's equal, but it's not joint. A joint inheritance is this. We'll step over there. When I say to, you, to them, I say, guys, I've got this great library, and I know you're both committed to ministry, and uh, you know, when I'm gone, I want the two of you to have this. I'm just going to give it to the two of you together. I know you can figure it out. I know you can maintain you know, enough unity between the two of you to make use of this, but here it is. You both own it together. Okay, that is joint heirship. That's what it means to be joint heirs. Thanks, guys. Good job. <clears throat> that is what we have with Jesus. We are joint heirs with Jesus. As amazing as it may sound, what Jesus has, I have. The riches he has, I have. The spiritual wealth he has, you have. You know, Jesus, you have it. The power he has, you have and I have. Because we are joint heirs with Jesus. Everything he has, I own with him in joint ownership. I mean, this is an amazing truth. And because I own it with him in joint ownership, then that means you and I own it also in joint ownership. We are related. We are connected And the closer we both get to Jesus, the better job we're going to do of managing our end of this joint ownership. So it speaks to the whole issue and the the value that the Bible has for unity among believers. Because uh, if, if a brother and a sister own that house together and they have to decide what's going to happen to it, but they're not on speaking terms, um, not much good's going to happen. But the, the, the more we press into a sense of, of unity, and that doesn't mean perfect agreement, 
and this isn't intended to be a message on the church, but uh, the, the more we understand unity with other believers and involvement with other believers' lives, the more of the inheritance seems to be just poured out on us, and, and we experience more and more of it. Now, um, we're gonna, I'm just going to show you one more thing, and then we're going to go into worship. But uh, there's a verse, as we think of this joint heirs with Jesus, his riches, our riches, his life, our life, his power, our power, his joy, our joy. You know, in Hebrews, it says Jesus was the most joyful person in the crowd. It says he was anointed with the spirit of joy above his brethren. So his joy is my joy. His peace is my peace. His confidence is my, his purpose is my purpose. His mission is my mission. I mean, it just goes on and on. And it's just some amazing stuff to think that we have this all in joint ownership uh, with Jesus. I, I, I have to say this, you know, I read a lot about um, th- this idea that the future's bleak and that the generation that's coming up right now is, is kind of hopeless because uh, the generations before it have spent everything and not managed everything too well, and, and the world's kind of going down, and, and the economy's not what it used to be, and there aren't as many opportunities as there used to be. How many of you have heard that? Yeah, I've read that, and I've read that, that particularly for younger people coming up, that that's very discouraging and very depressing. And what I want to say to you, especially to those of you who are younger, but I think to all of us, is this. Uh, we don't have to worry about all that. That stuff's irrelevant. If you've got the kingdom of God, you have Jesus in you. You're a carrier of the kingdom of God. You're a carrier of the presence of God. You go out and you influence the world. You're not a victim of the world. You're not a victim of what's happening out there doesn't make any difference. I mean, I'm all for the economy growing and and all of that. Don't get me wrong. But we don't have to worry about it because if I've got Jesus right here and I'm carrying his presence with me and and I'm walking with him, then I don't have to worry about the future. He's with me right now. He's going to be with me today, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, a year, 10 years. And he is with me. I have his riches. I have his wealth. I have his, his, his presence and his purpose in life. And we don't, have to, we don't have to fret about the future. Does that make sense? Amen. Yeah, I sure hope it does. I sure hope it does because I think that's our peace and our comfort and our strength. And um, uh, the rest of this has to do more with the Holy Spirit's presence and anointing. Uh, but in Acts 10, 38... Uh, it, Peter's preaching, and he says, you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I mean, what a beautiful verse, and what a picture of our inheritance. Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. Okay, Jesus has that, so I have it. It's a joint ownership. It's a joint inheritance. He goes about doing good, healing the sick, freeing people that are oppressed by the devil. He gets that. I get it. We're, we have, we're joint heirs. And this whole idea of the anointing of the Holy Spirit is such a, such a key thing 
that Jesus promised his followers anointing of the Holy Spirit. He said, anyone that follows me out of his belly is going to flow rivers of living water. Just think of that, life. Did I say this this service or the previous service that uh, wouldn't it be cool to to uh, you know, walk into some place and just bump up against somebody and the anointing of God that's on you just impacts their life. I said that earlier, didn't I? Okay. Remember that. That's a key thought. <laughs> but uh, I, I believe God wants us all to experience the Holy Spirit's presence. And I, I know some of us experience the Holy Spirit's presence more easily or less easily, or more deeply, or less deeply. But I think he wants all of us to begin to experience his presence. And that that's an important thing. That's called anointing. When we begin to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit, there's an anointing that comes onto our lives that uh, is just part of this inheritance that we have with Jesus. So, hey, as the worship team comes up, they're going to come up and uh, start to get ready. We're going to pray. And um, I'd like you all just to stand with me, would you? And you can pray a couple of things. You don't have to pray at all, for one thing. But uh, if if there's this desire in you to say, yeah, I really want to understand this inheritance more, and I really want to understand the anointing of the Holy Spirit more, then uh, you can just say that. And, And I'll lead you in just a short prayer here. So let's just close our eyes. And uh, with our eyes closed, if, if, if you want more, uh, relate, more experience with God, just hold your hands out in front of you like this, like you're expecting someone to hand you a gift. And, and just pray and say, uh, Lord Jesus, give me a greater hunger to know you, your Father, and to experience the Holy Spirit. Give me a greater hunger for that. Just pray that. Holy Spirit, I welcome your presence here. Thank you, you are here. Let's reveal your presence. Let those that are thirsty and weary drink of your presence, Holy Spirit, and be refreshed and renewed and walk in a greater sense of anointing, carrying the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to worship you. We want to worship you. Now turn our hearts to you and worship you. And as we do, Holy Spirit, rest on people all around this room. Holy Spirit, just come and just gently fall on people all around this room. Do what you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you want to worship up front, I tell you, it's a cool, cool experience. There's so much focus you get. You get focused. So just come on up front, okay? Uh, You don't have to be under 30 to do this, all right?